Hi to everybody, this is Patrick McKenzie, perhaps better known as Patio11 on the Internet. Welcome to the, I think, seventh uh, edition of the Calzumius podcast. I'm joined here by special guest Nathan Berry, author of Authority, uh, founder of ConvertKit, and a guy who has a few other things in his expanding product empire. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks very much for being here. So, I think we're probably going to be talking about info products today, primarily. Let's ask the obvious question first. Do you like the term info product? Uh, I think it's a little degrading. I tend to just refer to them as courses or books. Info product always brings up the the scammy internet marketer. Right, the um, whole make ID. money on, not online niche. Where... <clears throat> right, exactly. And so I just try to create or write things and teach things that provide value. And, you know, so right. I think info product doesn't demonstrate that very well. Yeah, I think that's something I totally agree with. I tried to call mine productized consulting because it was like a consulting engagement except delivered with less of my uh, hours of unique attention attached to each delivery. But I think you were also a consultant before you got into uh, being a publisher, right? So how did the arc of that transition go for you? Yeah, so I did some freelancing in college and then after I left college I did a year of freelancing full-time and then that went pretty well for me, but then I went on an extended, you know, five or six week international trip, didn't do any work, came back and it was beginning of 2009 and there was a recession going on in the U.S. And so uh, nobody wanted to work with me then. So I ended up taking a, a job leading the design team at a local startup and I worked there for three years and that was a really, uh, really great experience, learned a lot of things learned a lot of things not to do. But then I ended up building up a few little iPhone apps on the side, got those to making a few thousand dollars a month in revenue, and then used that to quit my job and go back to what I would call then consulting, where Mm -hmm. uh, before I referred to myself as a freelancer, after that point I referred to myself as a consultant. I think I brought a lot more value to each of my engagements, you know, having more experience and then, basically, after leaving that job, I launched my first book, which was the App Design Handbook. And that's when everything changed for me, because I went from these iPhone apps that were making anywhere from 1000 to maybe up to $4,000 a month, but really uneven revenue. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of it was, was chance. There wasn't a great marketing strategy there or anything. Uh, but then with the first book, I... Things started to make sense, and as far as marketing and product launches, and and I was able to make about twelve thousand five hundred dollars off of the book sales on the first day, and I, I never looked back. I actually never took a consulting project after that because, as you call it, productized consulting pays really, really well. Right, it kind of cannibalizes the business too. After you're capable of kind of like waving the magic wand and getting another one out the door, there's increasingly less and less uh, impetus to go out and grab another client engagement. Yep, exactly. Keith and I just, uh, the last episode of the podcast was on how this could potentially like be a way for people to get out of consulting, which since we've already done that topic to death, we're just going to you know, do more deep dives into like how to actually execute on it rather than saying, yeah, it would be a great idea to get away from you know crazy client issues and chasing invoices and yada yada. So can you just refresh my memory? When did you launch Designing Web Applications, which was your first book, basically? Yeah, so the first book was the App Design Handbook, which was focused on iOS oh, applications. Right. Sorry, and wrong. Yeah, so that one was came out September fourth, uh, two thousand twelve. 
so as we're recording this, it's been out for about nine nine months or so. And then the second book was Designing Web Applications, and that came out December 12th, 2012, so uh, just about 90, 90 days later. That is pretty <clears throat> impressive. So I, I kind of get the impression from you know just following your stuff on the Internet that you have been doing this for you know many, many years, and then I have to break myself to actually do the math. It's like, wait, that's 10 months. Now, granted, you have a career before that, and you're you know able to leverage what you learned from that, but the... The like public portion of the career, or you know, quote unquote public. Uh, the internet celebrity portion of the of the career is uh, just the last ten months. Yep, um, that's 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 right. So there was one, I guess, key thing or, or habit that I formed that made that really really easy to do, and that came from uh, Chris Gillibo. He writes a bunch of books and has a popular blog and stuff, but he kept telling me the idea of writing a thousand words a day. Basically, the idea of making slow, consistent progress on whatever you're trying to do. And so I built up a habit of writing a thousand words a day, and that's how I actually finished my first book. I tried to write a book in the past, and I'd never made it past like the first three or four pages. Mm-hmm. And, and so by working on it consistently every single day, I was actually able to finish it pretty quickly. And I kept track of it in a little iPhone app, you know, how many days in a row I'd written a thousand words a day. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is I I launched the app design handbook in September and I had a streak of like 85 days in a row at that point or 70 days in a row or something. And so then the next day after launch, my phone popped up and said, are you going to write a thousand words today? And I went, well, I have 85 days in a row, so Mm -hmm. I don't want to break that chain. So yeah, I'm going to write a thousand words, but what am I going to write it about? And I thought, you know, I really like, I talked about designing iPhone applications, but I've spent a ton of time designing web applications as well. So I should write about that. And basically I just rolled, you know, right into the next book because I had this habit of writing a thousand words a day. And uh, anyway, it's just continued and it's turned into another book after that. And I think I'm about a month away from hitting a full year of writing 1000 words a day. Wow. Congratulations. I really think Thanks. that the kind of the determination and stick with itness there is valuable to a lot of people. My business was no great shakes back in the day, and the the reason it is something larger than no great shakes now is just not stopping. Even when I was just very very part time on it and couldn't muster up more than five hours a week, I was trying to grind out one A B test every week, rain or shine. And I don't think I hit my streak numbers nearly as often as you did, but that was definitely one of the factors that kept it going in the right trajectory uh, prior to actually quitting the day job, having more time to work on it. So let's see, something that I often hear from people who I advise, well, if you you know don't love the day job or don't love consulting, maybe you could try this productized consulting thing. It's that, well, yeah, maybe that works for you know internet famous people, quote unquote, like you, Patrick, but I do not have a platform or a reputation or 7,000 Twitter followers, yada, yada, yada. In your experience, do you need to be, quote-unquote, Internet famous to actually make this work? Uh, no, not at all. It, it certainly helps in, in some areas, but I was not Internet famous just before I launched my first book. People hadn't really heard of me. I didn't have credibility and expertise. I designed a lot of software, but nothing, you know, I, I didn't design the Facebook mobile app or mm-hmm. uh, anything for major startups or things like that. So it's a fascinating topic of how you can gain credibility and and authority and one that I've worked on quite a bit. But just by 
teaching, you can gain you you gain this perceived expertise. So one story that I like to tell, you know, from me personally is back in like 2006, I was doing web design, you know, standard marketing websites. And so I spent a lot of time getting pretty good with CSS, you know, fixing cross-browser bugs, coding up everything. So I came across a site when it first launched called CSSTricks.com, and it was by Chris Coyer. And I remember looking at his site and going, you know, I read a couple articles and I went, oh, I, I know that. Like, he's not much of an expert because I already knew that. And, you know, I gave myself a little arrogant pat on the back or whatever. <laughs> and so he kept coming out with more articles, and I kept seeing that I already knew that. And so we were basically at the same level, and we were learning at the same pace. And over some time, you know, other web design friends would ask me a question, and I would, instead of answering it, I'd think, oh, Chris already wrote about this. So, let you know, I'll just forward on his his article because it, it was pretty good and so this continued on finally chris launched a kickstarter campaign years later so he's been helping people out and writing articles about css for years he launches a kickstarter campaign saying i'm going to redesign csstricks.com and you know i want to be able to raise 3500 bucks so that i can focus on it on doing a great redesign you know for a month and i don't have to worry about clients or jobs or anything like that <laughs> and uh, basically telling his audience, will you help me out so I can, can do this? And as a reward, I will record all these screencasts of the process and tutorials, and everybody who backs the project will get access to that. So I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it was something like $85,000 that he raised out of his $3,500 goal. Mm-hmm. And that made me really sit up and realize, okay, there's something else going on here. It's not about skill, because Chris and I were at the same level. We started at the same point. Because he was teaching, I think he got better than I did, and I definitely learned some stuff from him over the years. But he wasn't you know, that much more of an expert than I was skill-wise. But I did not have the ability to flip a switch and, you know, and come up with $85,000 in effectively product sales mm-hmm. in whatever 20 days or what his Kickstarter campaign was. And so that made me realize that the difference between he and I is that we both got better at the same level, but I kept that knowledge to myself, mm-hmm. whereas he shared it with everybody. He was teaching, and that gave him authority, and that gave him a following. Right. And so that's the moment that made me finally sit up and go, I need to be teaching. I totally agree with you there. I think teaching gives you both breadth and depth breadth and that the size of the community, the size of your following increases, and depth in that you, just by the nature of teaching things, you tend to learn them better than if you did not have to explain them to people. One Absolutely. Of, one of the reasons I originally started my blog back in the day is that I was worried that if I you know, just had to bat an idea around in my head, that I could uh, deceive myself very easily, whereas you know, actually forcing the discipline of seeing that idea in print would mean that I would have to like confront the internal logic a bit more. And it turns out that when you are routinely confronting the internal logic of your ideas of like the marketing direction for your software product or whatnot, and seeing that, okay, I posted in January about this being the plan, and it is now July, let's see if the plan and the actions taken subsequent to the plan and then the results actually like all you know match up together. And then course correcting based on that is much, much more effective than just kind of doing the natural human thing to uh, retrospectively construct a narrative that supports what you've been doing all along. But yeah, big fan of uh, teaching. Obviously, for it's a good thing to do for oneself, clearly. I think it's also a uh, net benefit for the community and whatnot. 
I don't swing quite as hippie as some in the community do, but I think that open source and the, the kind of cross-pollination of ideas that happens with the internet, with the uh, communities that have kind of started on the internet and moved offline, like the business of software forum community used to be like just a message board on Joel Spolsky's site back in the day, and then a bunch of us know each other in person now. Uh, the kind of the Amy Hoy crowd of friends is growing and meeting each other offline these days. Uh, Hacker News meetups are moving offline. And, um, and the ideas are, you know, getting mixed in these groups and then between groups and whatnot in a way that combines them to something that's larger than some of the parts, I think. So let's see. Uh, yeah. I, I guess one thing that I want to add on that, because we talked at a really high level of about, you know, teaching is important. But when it comes to actually launching a product and, and building that credibility, I would say the the first thing that that's really, really important is to say, I'm writing a book. I'm putting out this course and and put up a landing page for it. And just by doing that, like as a very first step, you gain some credibility. Because like for me, I was a random designer who occasionally blogged about useless stuff. But when I made the, the transition to, I'm writing a book about designing iPhone applications, mm-hmm. I think there were a bunch of people that sat up a little bit and looked. And just because I put up that landing page and said I was writing a book, that gave me the start of some credibility. Right. I totally agree with that. And that, you know, people's framings for value propositions are very important. The same way that people frame a newspaper article as ipso facto worth more than a blog post. Someone who's, Mm -hmm. you know, a published author or soon to be a published author on a topic is ipso facto more authoritative, uh, more credible, better informed with regards to that topic than somebody who isn't. And, um, you know, just putting that author word on your sleeve uh, is a better positioning for yourself than having other less useful words on your sleeve, like, say, blogger. Right. And, and you do need to follow up that blog post or that statement of credit, or the landing page or the statement of credibility, you know, with something that actually demonstrates ex- expertise. Right. Like some really in-depth blog posts on the topic. Mm-hmm. You know, sample chapters from your book, things like that. You do need to, you know, actually be good at it and right. show the world. But it's kind of like all marketing. Yeah. You know, there's the upfront promise, and then you have you have to actually deliver at some point the promises your marketing is making, because right. the uh, the internet short temper and a long memory. You only get one <laughs> reputation these days. So if you not to say that your first product is going to be the end all be all of every book ever published in the history of man. But you can't put things which are terrible attached to your name because you only get one of them. Yep. Hmm. That conflicts with another piece of advice that I often give, which is ship things even if they're crappy. How do I resolve that contradiction? Um, definitely do ship things even if you're cra- if you think they're crappy, because I think other people will think they are substantially less crappy than you do. I think as creators, we often have kind of that oh, dunning something rather effect going on where, you know, we see all the warts. We don't have kind of like the view from outside our own head of how useful this is to someone who is just getting started or who has never seen curated resources on this topic or has not been living this for the last, you know, 90 days of a thousand words a day like we have. Yeah, and and I think when it comes to the reputation, if you're you're trying hard to put put out something that's good, people will give you a lot of credit for it. And I, I think if you're putting out something that, that's scammy or charging a lot for it when there's not the value there, mm-hmm. you know, that that's where it's going to hurt your reputation. But if you're earnestly trying, 
and shipping things often and trying to deliver a lot of value and help people, then putting out an early version of your product is not going to hurt your reputation. That's something that prevented me from publishing for the longest time was just uh, being scared of being seen as taking advantage of people. Um, partly it was due to the natural engineer like distrust of charging money for anything. And partly mm-hmm. something that I would, would not have said that I agreed in, but like you know, a little voice inside of me was agreeing with any way with information is free on the internet. How could you possibly charge money for it? Which, being older and wiser now, uh, I've learned that, especially when you're talking in a B2B context, you know, somebody who has salaries to pay every two weeks, regardless of what those employees are doing, cannot find things for free on the internet. Because if you tell one of your lead engineers to spend two weeks researching a topic, and you pay them $10,000, you know, regardless of whether the blog posts they were reading were quote-unquote free, creates yep. a lot of value to uh, curate a topic and give them you know, resources of a known quality in an easy, digestible format, rather than having them kind of have to spelunk and do the uh, curation step themselves, or do the, you know, okay, before I actually get to doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing on designing this web application or writing this email campaign, I have to first design a curriculum to teach myself that. And then I will take my own curriculum, warts and all, and then I will do the implementation, and then we will actually get back to you know selling the thing that makes this business run. Yep. So that's where if, you, if you're teaching a skill that other people use to make money, and you're teaching it to people who have money, so you know that that can be programming, design, marketing, you know anything. That if it meets those two criteria, then people will happily pay to save even a little bit of time because they're they're businesses and they're looking at profit and loss and mm-hmm. and the, those factors. So that's how it's easy to justify a price of two hundred fifty dollars or five hundred dollars or more mm-hmm. if you can demonstrate that it it delivers far more value than that and saves far more time. Yep, definitely. And there will be people, you know, when you announce that say, oh, you've you've jumped the shark, you've sold out, nobody will ever buy this, yada, yada, yada. Everything I've ever done, from bingo card creator on down, I had at least a few people saying, nobody's going to buy this. And at some point, I've just come to accept that there, like, exists that, you know, psychograph of people who just are fundamentally unhappy with the notion that products sell. But they're empirically not that good at predicting that because all products ever have sold. So I would just, you know, kind of like discount that opinion when people say it to you for folks listening in the audience. Well, I'm going to, I think, misquote you when I say this, but you mentioned it in a a Hacker News comment on, I think it was for my book Authority when it came out, and there was somebody complaining about pricing and other things about it, and your comment was something along the lines of, this is like the vegetarians complaining about the prices of, from the hot dog vendors. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. basically, these aren't the people who are buying your product so or who have any interest in your product. And so their opinion is not really relevant. Right. So I released a course on doing lifecycle emails last October, I think. And it was largely focused for people who had businesses at a certain amount of scale. My typical consulting client would or was at at the time, uh, 10 to $50 million a year in sales. And when I had an idea of the person I was writing it for, it was really someone who had the official title, chief marketing officer or you know head of product or something like that at a business that was like at or near the scale of my consulting clients, You know, maybe at a million dollars a year of sales or at the low end, like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year of sales. And mm-hmm. then obviously 
there being many folks on the internet who did not have several hundred thousand dollars a year of sales. People were, you know, in the context of I am a $30 an hour freelancer, $500 seems like a whole lot of money, whereas it just doesn't when you're selling licenses that cost $20,000 a pop. It was hilarious feedback I was getting because, you know, I was getting the, oh, it's crazy to charge money for this free blog post on the internet, yada, yada, yada. And um, the feedback I was getting from some of the potential customers where it was like, we are literally incapable of tracking a number this low on our systems. And, you know, the, the expected value of a single lead exceeds the price of this course by several times. That is making it difficult for me to convince my boss to buy it. Somebody literally asked if like, they could just you know, write an extra zero on the invoice. Um, a, get an invoice, but B, write an extra zero on it to you know, convince the boss that it was worth the money. That segues neatly into the next question, packaging. So one thing that's worked out very well for you is having kind of, um, I don't know if the, what the word is, one project, one like overarching brand for a product, but having a multiple ways to deliver that product or multiple packages at different price points. Can you walk us through how you got started with that and how you sort of think about packaging? Yeah, so really quickly, the the idea is, or how it's come out in practice is I have a book. We'll take uh, designing web applications as an example. And, you know, the book is, to me, is the core product. You know, it's going to be, not that this matters, but 150 pages of content. And that's where I, where I put the majority of my effort. But then there are other things, other useful things that could go with that. Oh, and I'll price just that book at $39. But then I think, what other things could I include that will save someone time? Because there are people who value their time far more than they, or they value it at a higher rate. And so, yeah, I want to think, okay, what can I include that will save them time? For, and that they'd be willing to part with a little bit more money for. And so that's things like much more specific video tutorials on specific actions or Photoshop templates, code samples, all those kind of details. And then I also think about what would provide additional value, you know, just as an educational resource. It may not save time, but it's more things. And, and my favorite there to do is interviews. And I don't like interviews as the product themselves. I like them as as a value add to an existing product. And so I'll get a bunch of you know different fantastic people to sit down for half an hour or an hour, and and I'll interview them about the topic. So for designing web applications, I interviewed Ryan Singer and Jason Freed from Thirty Seven Signals, who are you know fantastic product designers. Interviewed. Trent Walton, who had just redesigned Microsoft.com, and just you know was able to gain a lot of insight into their workflow and process, but also bundle that up and include it with a top-tier package of uh, designing web applications. And so what I ended up with is taking the book and all that other content and dividing it into three packages, priced at $39 for just the book, and I think there's a few other little things in there with it. And then $99 for the book plus some of the video tutorials and some of the interviews. And then, you know, everything, all the interviews, more tutorials, more code samples at a price like uh, I went with $249. And what that does is it lets your customers segment themselves. So the freelancer who makes 30 or $40 an hour can buy just the book get a ton of value out of it, hopefully. 
implement all, all the stuff and be a really happy customer. Mm-hmm. The maybe the design consultant who has charges a lot more, uh, values his time a lot more, can go with the middle package, get more stuff out of it. Ninety nine dollars might not be that much to spend for him, and the extra value is definitely worth it to him. Mm-hmm. But then that two hundred forty nine dollar package is fantastic for real businesses. Because to them, once they're holding that company credit card in their hand, Mm -hmm. there's really no difference between $39 and $249, so long as it's below that magic threshold of, I have to ask my boss for approval. Right, which, FYI, for anybody who hasn't heard me say this a hundred times, that magic threshold is generally either $500 or $1,000. Yeah, exactly. And so, if you've made a decision to buy this product... Then and it's just a matter of of which version to to buy at that point. And I know this from buying stuff for my design team at the last company I worked for. I would look at it and go, "Is this higher package or more expensive product going to save me a couple hours worth of time?" And I would do some quick math on it, like how much effort and time will this save my team and if it was more than a couple hours then it was totally worth it there was one time i was buying a a wordpress plugin that i needed for the marketing site and i only needed a single site license but i was thinking about it and going well at some point in the future i might need a multi-site license i could see you know there's a decent chance of that and so i bought the multi-site license for the company well in advance just to make sure that I wouldn't have to come back to the site and remember my login information mm-hmm. and sign back in and make another purchase. Mm-hmm. Because I knew what my time was worth to the company, I knew what they paid me, and I knew that you know just me coming back and making a second purchase was more expensive to the company than me upgrading to the multi-site license right then. It's one of those mindset shifts where people, both of us come from modest means. And mm-hmm. We were talking about this prior to the podcast, and um, you kind of get the feeling ingrained in you when you are just doing commerce for yourself that if you're from modest means and have like a very frugal mindset, that a $12 purchase versus a $20 purchase is something you think about and consider and weigh the pros and cons carefully because that's, you know, $8 that you could save, right? Where in a corporate situation, basically nothing under the cost of like, you know, one week of a full loaded employee's time is a meaningful amount to the company. My business these days is running at a fairly high clip of revenue and expenses. And I wrote a $10,000 check on less than like two hours of thought in the, you know, recent past. So given that at my as my like pricing anchor of how quickly I can spend money when it is justified by value to the business, $49 and $249 and $749 all around to zero for me, basically. And that's not, yeah, actually, you know, that's not my, bragging. Like, bingo card creator at all is kind of, you know, a blip on the scales of a quote-unquote real business. If you haven't had a P&L responsibility at a company yet, you just, it's kind of, like, difficult to just make the shift and figure out how, ultimately, how little pricing matters um, from your perspective. Makes a yeah. great difference. Great, huge difference from the perspective of the person selling it because being smart about pricing and smart about packaging can really juice re- your returns from doing the same amount of work. Yeah, and I'll, I'll share some numbers on that in just a second. My favorite story related to expenses and business and that kind of thing is a friend of my dad's growing up was an engineer at a really large 
printer and computer manufacturing company. And uh, he had a story of in their R&D lab, they had this this box or, you know, this series of drawers, you know, a whole bunch of different nuts and bolts and all these little parts that were all separated out into like 30 different drawers and labeled perfectly and all of that. And he was walking along and he bumped into it and knocked the whole thing on the floor and made this disaster. You know, everything's mixing together uh, of all these parts. And so another engineer like jumps up to help separate it all out and mm-hmm. so he can fix this. And he just grabs a broom and a dustpan, sweeps it all up, throws the whole thing away. And the engineer's like, but those parts are worth money. And it's like, well, how much are they really worth? 15 bucks? And we're going to spend an hour's worth of time, both of us, separating this out and cost the company $300 or more? Not going to happen. Throw it away and move on. And that just shows how, when you have a sensible approach to pricing, it makes it a big difference. Right. But referring to how it makes a difference on the seller's end, designing web applications made uh, $26,500 in the first 24 hours after it came out. Had I just used a single price point, so had I not given the people who wanted to pay more an option to pay more, because if the $249 price wasn't there, then I wouldn't have had fewer sales necessarily, Mm -hmm. or I wouldn't have had more sales. It's just those people who would have paid 249 would have just given me 39 instead. Right. And had that not been there, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it would have been about $8,000. Right. So essentially so the, for similar amounts of work to um, to develop the product, you made an extra, uh, let me do the math in my head, 220% or so because you were savvy about uh, your pricing strategy for it. Yep, exactly. And every time I've seen multiple packages in use, both when I do it and when other people do it, it consistently doubles revenue, mm-hmm. if not triples revenue. Right. This is something where it's very rare to find tactics which are just magic win buttons that work in every situation. This is kind of one of them, um, sort of like Charge More, which, by the way, Charge More. That's both yes. for the people listening to this. And honestly, I think the two of us could listen, could hear it too. I remember... Um, uh, Keith, my co-host, had to talk me out of pricing my first product at $79, and then eventually went up to 249 for the early adopter discount, and then uh, basically 500 for the ongoing sales of the product, and that obviously created significant value for myself and my customers, But so A, charge more. But the multi-tier structure for packaging, much like the multi-tier structure for software as a service, is very, very good at uh, reducing the absolutely absurd amount of customer surplus that these products would otherwise generate. You know, the case where we're selling something for to a business for $49, which they're going to turn around into several hundred thousand dollars worth of additional business for the company. Yeah. And, uh, well, my favorite part about it is you can get more revenue based on, on the value you're providing. Every company does not get the same amount of value from your product. Right. And so you can let them pay based on the amount of value they're likely to get. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to exclude the people at the bottom end level. Like the freelancers can still afford my book at $39 mm-hmm. and I don't have to completely exclude them. So that's also for some people been kind of a, that particular point has been a way to, um, to kind of like assuage their inner worries about charging more. For example, yeah. some people mm-hmm. are very concerned about like distributional access to their things and they don't want to exclude folks who are you know just starting a business or just less well off than other people 
given that you know you have an affordable entry point into the uh, product, then there's no reason to feel guilty about charging you know, $500 or $1,000 to the firms who can afford it. I've seen a lot of people uh, be pretty successful with that. Personally, I almost intentionally wish I could um, like mark something that I very nearly did last time and I might do this time for my product was asking like a quick four question questionnaire like do you already have a business that is making at least X amount of dollars check this box and if you do not check that box I would just physically not let you buy it Mm -hmm. because um, you know it depends on like the kind of product you're delivering the advice on the product but if it's only going to meaningfully create value for people who are already operating a business at scale then obviously, both from their point of view and from my point of view, I would prefer not to sell to people who are not going to get the value from the product. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. So echoing your tale of just put a pricing stru- or packaging structure in place and, and it is an auto win. For my course, I did a, just a what would be called in software a site license. I said, well, you can you know buy it for yourself or if you want to share it with your team. It's not DRM'd or anything. You can download it and put it on your server. Just buy the, I think I called it the corporate package, which was just four times the price. There was absolutely nothing different about the product or the implementation. There was no DRM on either version, so it was either you know, files which you could download and watch and do whatever you can normally do with files, or files which you can download and watch and do whatever you normally do with files, but could illicitly show it to other people. Now, I know you haven't had quite as much uh, success on the kind of uh, site licenses I have. So, oh, what was my success on that? So I was selling these site licenses at between $1,000 and $2,000, and I think um, just for the cost of, like, putting one extra paragraph on my page, I got, I remember being, like, low five figures of marginal revenue associated with that. I would have to run a SQL query to to verify (laughs) that. But, um, yeah, it was obviously clearly worth doing for me and clearly worth buying for the company because, you know, a lot of them said, oh, yeah, you know, we turned around and made this into a six-figure campaign. Congrats. At that point, they're like, hmm, the 1000 I sold them, really not all that much money compared to what they got out of this. Anyhow, right. um, but the the reason why I think the site license worked better for me than it has for you is both mine was competing with less options. Like, you already had the mm-hmm. sophisticated tier structure in place with the three different tiers, and then you had the upsell to the site license, which was presented kind of in parallel to those three, but not at the same level of uh, visual or important weight. Yeah. You didn't give it the same weight in either the copy or the visual presentation or anything. So you would have really had to work to find the site license on your site, whereas on mine it was kind of given equal visual weight to the core product. Um, also, just in terms of like who we sell to, uh, your market is largely designers. Mine was uh, by construction just B2B software firms. And B2B software firms have a very particular notion about the importance of intellectual property, just in terms of like the makeup of the people who work with them, their business models, the way they treat things internally. So a lot of them will err on the side of caution when given even like a nudge in the direction of B2W, this is intellectual property, you can't just put it in the company Dropbox like I know you're going to want to do, but that's something you could buy. And then a lot of them seeing that will be, oh, that is something I can buy, that is something I will buy, because that is, comes naturally to me. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to think about, you know, like you said, who the who the target is and how, how much they care about intellectual property and copyright. That said, I think that my audience, th- there's enough design teams that would be interested in the product mm-hmm. that I think it could have been a good fit. So I think the area that 
you know, maybe not as many people would have gone for the site license as a percentage as with your products, mm-hmm. just because of the fit and, and focus. But I think the biggest mistake that I made, and this copy is still on uh, nathanberry.com slash web apps, if you want to look at, you know, the, the copy and design for that part, you know, pay attention in order to actually find the site license. Uh, that's part of the, the mistake, is that I just said a one line about if you'd like to share this with your team, buy the site license for $1,000. So I went with the 4X price as well. And I don't think it, it triggered any red flags for people as far as on the copyright side of things. Like looking at your copy, it triggers something of, hey, like you said, hey, this is an intellectual property issue. You need to pay attention. <laughs> Which, Whereas mine just says, eh, if you want a site, site license, like go, you know, buy it. It doesn't trigger any thoughts of if you share this with a lot of people, you know, it's kind of a copyright violation. So copy matters. Copy definitely matters. Uh, that's something that we see over and over again in our work, both for ourselves and for other people. I'm just going to read out the copy that I used for this because I kind of like it. You, you can see it at lifecycleemails.com if you just plug that into your browser. My uh, sales page is still up and still making sales. That's probably something we should talk about in a moment. But uh, do you have a few people at your organization who would benefit from taking this course? No problem. We sell group licenses, too. You can either grant your coworkers access to the course on our site, or you can download the material and host it internally. One corporate license covers up to 100 people within the same organization. We trust you not to abuse our confidence. No DRM is involved. And that kind of you know, positions it as it mentions, like, obliquely the, the IP-related thing, but doesn't, like, wham them over the head with it. As long as we're talking about IP and DRM and whatnot. What's your stance on piracy? Because I know a lot of people are like, oh God, you're selling files? People can copy files. You're going to lose all your money to people copying it for free, empirically. <laughs> How's that working out for you? So I make money for my products. People buy them. Um, they're quite available on torrent sites. You can go check them out. Go go Google designing web applications. I don't know, free download or, or whatever you would add on to the end of that. Actually, you can just probably Google the product name and click to the second page and you'll get free downloads. You might get some viruses al- along with that, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So it's widely available to Pirate. I didn't add any DRM, and uh, I am quite happy with the amount of money I'm making, and I just don't worry about it. I don't want to give my customers the idea that I don't trust them, mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to frustrate them with DRM or anything like that. Basically, I don't want to potentially jeopardize a relationship with somebody who I care about and who cares about me mm-hmm. in order to potentially stop somebody who will probably never buy my product. Right. That said, it might be worthwhile to, I don't know, hire a freelancer to try to get Google to delist some of these, at least so they don't show up on the first page of results. But otherwise... I think it's, more than, it's just not worth the effort. I think more than the minimum amount of effort placed to secure things is probably a loss, especially in our industry slash the sort of things we are selling. I'm sort of a heretic on DRM with regards to software programmers in that I kind of understand why it's valuable for people in the content industries like you know, video games and movies and whatnot who have a sales cycle which is dominated by the first 48 hours and first one week of sales. So even if they can delay the appearance of a crack by like six hours, that makes a meaningful amount of uh, revenue for the business. But for 
you know, sole proprietors like us who have products like these, it's uh, basically anything above the minimum amount of work to keep honest people honest is sort of a net loss to you. And yep. the minimum it amount is. of work is, you know, require a credit card to download and don't make the link like copy pasteable to other people. Yep. I think you use uh, Gumroad for fulfillment, right? Yeah, I do. And they're they're fantastic. I love the team over there and uh, highly, highly recommend them. Yeah, I met them and through uh, the Bacon BizCon where they were one of the speakers and uh, Ryan Felk, one of the, uh, I think he's the founder, came out to there. We yeah, he's the, he's the uh, mm-hmm. head of their business development. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, it was uh, uh, great, great fun, and they are solid folks. I did all of my delivery slash fulfillment through an application, which I coded largely because I am um, at the point where I was launching this last year. I hadn't done any hardcore programming in a while and really, really wanted to, but it's absolutely the wrong choice. Nobody is not buying your thing because it doesn't have a custom show- coded shopping cart. So, uh, Right, and you just hear people... Somebody said this the other day where they really liked Gumroad's implementation of the checkout process, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't like is Gumroad charges a 5% fee, mm-hmm. so that includes the credit card processing, plus, tw- I think, 25 cents. Whereas Stripe you know, charges, what, 2.9% plus 30 cents or t- 25 cents or you know, somewhere right in there. So Stripe is 2.1% cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so this person was was going to rebuild on their own because they had the technical skills, mm-hmm. the Gumroad checkout process, almost exactly, mm-hmm. in order to save two point one percent on each transaction. Right, it's absolutely and, insane. Like you're committing yourself to doing the bare bones implementation of doing a something like this is between you know three to five days of work. And you know if you figure your first info product is going to sell, let's say you're fairly successful with it because you've heard from Nathan and Brennan and Maya's experience and you're not making all the mistakes we did on our first one. Let's say you sell $100,000. We, you've saved yourself $2,000 of tax write-offable costs for a week of your time. Whereas if you had spent that week, you know, your existing consulting business, you'd presumably have made a lot more. Or if you had spent that week, rather than like duplicating, you know, the table stakes to entrance, you had just worked on your copy, you would be at a multiple. Like, it's absolutely insane how important copy is, like headings and whatnot, the call to actions on buttons. I've seen people who've coded their own shopping cart, and it was more important to them that worked than they were, like, you know, paying rigorous attention to all the details. They left, like, the button on the buy page be submit or something, where, you know, I've got, what, eight years of A-B testing experience at this point. I can pretty much tell you that if you had thought to change that button, that would be worth, like, 20% of sales. But you didn't think wow. to change that button because you had just spent, you know, a week building a shopping cart when you should have just been pulling one off the shelf from Gumroad or any of the numerous scripts that you could just drop in and uh, get this to work. Yeah, there's all kinds of other factors. Like, it's fascinating talking to Ryan from Gumroad about all the stuff they do on fraud prevention. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into processing payments that you don't see in an interface. Yeah, I, I tend to think, and again do what I say, not what I do, um, but unless you are very sure you're going to add value to your implementation, go with one of the people you can buy to do this. Unless you really, really want to code a shopping unless cart. Unless you really, really want to code a shopping cart. Go for cart. it. And the Gumroad guys did try to uh, sell me on using them a few times, and I told them, 
Uh, one of the reasons I said no was I said, look, it's my professional competence to build checkout flows because I do that for consulting clients. So the experience of like coding one more where I can actually like share the results of doing it adds value to me. I don't think that's totally just a self-serving excuse because I wanted to build a shopping cart, but there's perhaps those two things together in solution. To change topics briefly, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you threw interviews into one of your top tiers on uh, your packages, and I just want to talk a little more about interviews because I think interviews are kind of underappreciated as a as kind of a promotional tool. One of the reasons um, yeah. why. So one of the reasons that a lot of people do interviews to either supplement a product or as the product itself is that, candidly, the creation costs for interviews are less than like writing an equivalent amount of stuff yourself because you just turn on, turn on the camera, get an expert in front of the camera, hit record, talk for 30 minutes, stop hitting record, and that has a certain amount of perceived value, which generally tends to scale up with the perceived expertise of the expert and you know what they say in the interview. But in addition to the content creation cost being lower, if you are interviewing experts, experts typically already have their own following. And the first thing they do when you release your thing and say, hey, uh, thanks for being a participant in my you know, designing web applications, your interview is in the top package and I released it today, they will promote that to their audience slash their community, which since they typically have a larger audience community than you do, and many of that audience community will follow them wherever they go, and that gets you mm-hmm exposure to people who are willing to buy your thing because that expert or that person they trust was in it. Yep, absolutely. And you just, you give them a copy of the whole product, which since it's just information, that doesn't cost you anything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you include that with an email of thank you so much for being a part of this, I really appreciate it. Here's a, a free copy of the, the book and everything and then here's a link if you want to share it. And so, in general the, that'll get at least 50% of the people you interviewed to share it, mm-hmm. at least. Yep. And that's worth a ton. Every time I get interviewed in something, I uh, at the very least tweet it out and uh, generally send a you know brief notification on my email list, like you know on the next scheduled email. By the way, if you guys want to hear more from me, I was interviewed in this book thing, and I've, I've heard from people who use unique tracking everything that just the tweet is can be worth 20 sales. So it takes me a minute to minute to compose and then uh, you know all of 10 minutes to compose the email to me uh, asking for it so worth it at the margins right yeah well and it's also a, a fantastic way to get to know people mm-hmm. who can deliver a ton of value to your business and all kinds of things so because right. after or and after you've done something together you know you're no longer strangers so actually you know a perfect example is you and i where i think we exchanged some comments on hacker news and maybe an email about pricing I, I think your exact co- your comment was something like your pricing is the f- first non stupid pricing I've seen on Hacker News or you know something yeah, like that. I was um, um, very impressed with it going on. That's right. <laughs> we so this trajectory has happened a lot for me in recent years. But get to know someone through Hacker News, swapping an email occasionally. With then you interviewed me for one of your products. I think designing web applications. Yeah, because I wanted to cover kind of the business marketing side of it. Mm-hmm. At least give people an introduction to that. Right. So. We had that brief exchange about pricing, and uh, that actually, going back to the pricing conversation for a second, mm-hmm. I had lower prices for the App Design Handbook, and based on your feedback, I increased them to the thirty nine ninety nine two forty nine prices mm-hmm. that we talked about earlier. But yeah, so I didn't, inter- you know, we did an interview, included it with designing web applications, and it's just a great, great way to get to know people because you and I have talked a lot since then, hung out at conferences, mm-hmm. and... 
Yeah, we're definitely yeah. Um, definitely moving past internet buddies into that kind of like professional acquaintances slash friend stage of the relationship, which that sounds a little odd. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I can be a little socially awkward at times. I'll own it, but you know, uh, it's it's a real thing, right? Like, yep, there's definitely exactly. people who definitely people. Some of my good friends are people who you know I quote unquote met on the internet, and then after you hang out with somebody for a few years, there's no other word for it, right? You're your friends or you're not. Anyhow, so obvious to the two of us, but perhaps not obvious to the people are listening to this. When you're approaching 10 different people to do interviews, what sort of monetary incentive are you offering them to do these interviews with you? <laughs> I get this question a lot. Yeah. Um, um, and and it, the, it, the answer is zero. <laughs> I think we've both covered this topic in depth with other people, but somebody, not you, but a different person who was asking me for an interview uh, for, you know, a book that they were launching, which they were going to price it like $20, asked what number they would need to offer me from, from that to make it worth my time. And I said, look, I like you. I like the idea for this project. It was something on, you know, doing, making a SaaS business as like a, a sideline. So, you know, sideline, side project. You're dear to my heart. And I said, I like you. I like the project. I will do the interview. Candidly, there is no amount of money you could offer me. You could reasonably offer me from this project that makes a darn bit of difference to my financial situation for this year. So don't. <laughs> and I think, you know, like you got uh, Jason Fried to do an interview with you. Yeah. You could ball up your entire business and my entire business and drop it in like the 37 signals bottom line. And I don't know if anybody at that company would notice. So, right. And so you know, we're talking $1,000 to get on the phone with you is not necessarily <laughs> going to get him out of bed. Yeah, exactly. But he'll do it because he wants to help out, you know, business people, people putting out products and he wants, he's a nice person and generally wants to be helpful. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start talking money and how you're going to offer him 5% of your product that may or may not make anything, mm -hmm. It it just gets weird. So right, I think um, don't ever bring that up. What's that thing in predictably irrational where people have one schema for evaluating like monetary transactions and they have the other schema for evaluating non-monetary transactions and they operate in different fashions. Yeah, like if you, my, I, I've got a rule for basically. This is by the way a half around me being a very having issues with socializing. Young uh, when I was younger, I always say yes when people invite me to do things. I just unless I can articulate a good reason to say no, I say yes. So if you invited me out to a party that was happening later today, I would say yes, and then you know maybe think about whether there should be any reason for saying no rather than do the thing that I would default to when younger, which is saying no, just because my brain would like cook up some rationalization, but was really I'm terrified of going to the party. So if you ask me, can we hop on a Skype chat later and I'll record it and put in this product? Like 99% of the time, unless, you know, I have a date with my wife or something that you'd be bumping, the answer is yes. But if you ask me to do like a business proposition, then the cold-blooded businessman in me cut, comes out and very few business propositions are going to be worth my time. Yep. So. Well, a, a classic case of this is with people doing open source software development, you'll get some really top-notch developers who will pour you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours into these projects, all for free, never get any money directly out of it. Mm -hmm. And so somebody will come in and go, you put all this time in, I just need something slightly different. Can I pay you $25 to make this change? Mm -hmm. And as soon as you say that, yeah. they switch over to, well, hold on, I'm a $200 an hour consultant. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, boom. Not only am I not going to do it, you're, you're offending me. Right. 
Like, you don't value my time at all. If you ask them to do it for free, chances are they would do it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's it's that two totally different mindsets. And so if you want to interview people, if you want help from somebody, ask very nicely with a pitch very specific to them. You know, they didn't just copy and paste to a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And most likely they'll do it. The um, single best thing that can convince people, uh, convince me to... <laughs> give the rest of the email some thought is some serious thought in the first few sentences um, I follow you I'm familiar with your work and have a reason why you in particular should be contributing to this thing in particular rather than yeah. like you know I'm clearly I wrote a list of 10 people who have a name in our space and I'm emailing it out to all 10 yeah. like I hate to sound like I'm an internet celebrity because I'm not um, you know there's people like Nathan and I are much closer to you podcast listener than we are to the 37 signals or the Jill Spolskis of the world. But yep. as a, it is a fact of nature, we do have a certain amount of audience. But, you know, like if you are doing a product on A-B testing or conversion optimization or running a small software business, and you can tie that to things that I've written before or things that I'm clearly passionate about, then, you know, I want to say yes to that, right? Whereas if you're just doing, you know, how to start a startup or how to get venture funding, then... I don't know if Paul Graham is too busy to be interviewed for something like that, but Paul Graham would be a much better person to interview than I would be. How to get venture funded? I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would, you have a, well, a lot of experience in that area. Uh, not Get into Y Combinator. That will help crease most of the skids for that. If you had a question on how to get into Y Combinator and being on Hacker News like it's my job might give me some idea of what to tell you. But yeah, um, <laughs> I don't think that, that would be something I would uh, make people pay for the advice for. Uh, yep. Anyhow. Well, the, uh, we're at about an hour, and we've got more to cover, so mind if we uh, move on to the next topic? Sounds good. So the beating heart of both of our businesses is an email list. And I think that even when I say that it is the beating heart of our business, and probably in my case, I think if I were to you know produce a like formal uh, statement of assets and liabilities, my email list would come in right under the accumulated value of my IP uh, mm-hmm. for the business. And I think you might with circumstances for your business, it might actually be the other way around. And yet yeah. people do not understand this. So let's wax rhapsodic or whatever even more about how you should have an email list and uh, be sending stuff to it. You first. Yeah, so I put having an email list as probably the second the second most important business realization that I've ever had. The first being that you should teach. Mm-hmm. So email lets you teach to people in a reliable way and uh, reliable and consistent. What you said about business assets, I would consider my email list, and it's not massive, It's right now it's 7,000 people, to be the most valuable asset that I own. It's probably more valuable than everything else I own combined. You know, more valuable than my cars and whatever else. Not that I have a lot of assets, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's worth a ton, and I can't understate that. Uh, you know, I can't say that too strongly. And... But I should point out, it's not that I have 7,000 emails separated by commas that I can download and do something with. It's that I've built up a relationship and I've taught useful things to 7,000 people right. over time. I think, and yeah, when we talk about it in marketer speak, like, you know, that just the phrasing of list, it gets people wave like that obscures the fundamental relationship, which is that, you know, maybe the better way to think about it is not that you have a list of 7,000, but that you have 7,000 relationships created with people who trust Nathan Barry as their go-to guy on these subjects. They are yep. you know, not just any 7,000 people, but largely 7,000 people who have a deep amount of interest and need for the sort of thing that you make. 
yeah. and ability in many cases to pay money to buy it. So I guess the, the important thing that I want you to take away, want listeners to take away, is how email, <laughs> the consistency of it. So I asked at the Bacon Biz conference, um, you know, it's a, a room full of bootstrappers and software people and all of that. And I asked, you know, who likes recurring revenue? And, uh, you know, there's a good, a good chuckle from everybody as, you know, everybody raises their hand. And recurring revenue is awesome because it's predictable. Your customers who love you the most keep paying you. In theory, it grows over time. You know, you're going to have a certain amount of loss. And so long as you can exceed that with growth, then you make more money than the previous month. All kinds of awesome things. And I had a realization that email is like recurring revenue for traffic and visitors. So I looked at my my traffic stats for my blog, and they were all over the map until I started building up a good email list. So I could have traffic that went up a huge amount one month because of, you know, a story went went viral or whatever, and then dropped significantly the next month. So it was crazy and all over the map. But email, I could just keep consistently growing that list. I'd lose some every time I send an email, but I, so long as I gain more than that, my list grows every time. I have a, a relationship with each one of those people. And so to me, email is the, it's the same idea as recurring revenue, but for getting visitors and, and, and engaged readers to your content. I totally agree with everything you just said. One of the reasons I created my email list after years of not doing it, which years that I very much regret now, because there were you know hundreds of thousands of people who visited my blog over that time that I have no way of getting in touch with ever again. Like you, you know, I had a, um, I had a blog. There were many articles which were very well received on it, and there were, you know, on any given day, 500 or 1,000 people would, like, make it a habit of checking to see whether I'd posted a new thing. But aside from those folks who are, like, in the inner circle of really love everything you do and want to hear about it, there was no way to get for, for me to grow that number effectively other than just publish, 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 and no way to reach people in a more uh, deliberate manner than just you know posting something and hoping that it got good distribution on Hacker News and whatnot. Yeah. And partly as a business owner, no matter how much you like any distribution channel, you never want to be totally locked into one of them. And then partly as just like you know a regular old Hacker News denizen, it's weird, but I occasionally ask for my things to be on the front page less, just because I never want to burn people out with them or give people the impression that I'm you know explicitly using Hacker News as like the the me, me, me all the time marketing channel. One of the benefits of having an email list was that by construction, since people have asked to get it from you, it can be the me, me, me show. Um, as long, well, it shouldn't be the me, me, me show. It should be the you, you, you show. The, you know, every email to them creates value for them, whether you're you know, teaching them new things or potentially giving them some sort of sales message for something that would create value. But um, like it can be a, huh, how do I want to phrase it? It can be rather more focused on things I am doing than say blog post could be without coming off as quite self-absorbed yeah because they opted in to hear from you and at any time they can opt out so you can you can guarantee that these people want to hear from you right speaking Um, of opt-outs by the way a great line i heard from uh, joanna at copy hackers was that the unsubscribe is not something that you should take as a mortal insult it's just like the 
the email equivalent of hitting the back button. Yeah. We've all seen the stats for our blogs. We know that a lot of people won't read it. They'll just hit the back button and whatnot, and we're okay with that. But then we get the report from MailChimp that says, who sent out a mail to 7,000 people and five people unsubscribed. And then we get that like feeling in the pit of our stomach, like, oh, God, what did I say? Where you know, it's not something you have yep. to worry about at that level. It's like 1% of the list on every email, then you have to worry about it. But you know, some people are, are going to decide that it wasn't for them, and that's okay. I've, yep, said in, totally I've said in various degrees of uh, seriousness, but 500 people who don't want you, who don't like what you're doing, and three dollars will buy you a cup of coffee. But three dollars <laughs> might not actually buy you a cup of coffee these days. Yeah, and something I think this is uh, from Ramit Sethi, where he talks about like actively trying to get people to unsubscribe, mm-hmm. just because if somebody doesn't want to be on the list, then they're never going to buy anything from you and you don't actually want them on the list. And so mm-hmm. that's why you make it super easy to unsubscribe. And, you know, Ramit goes as far as saying, like, sending out an email saying 1,000 of you should unsubscribe. Mm-hmm. I think he had that as a subject line. So can we go back in the time machine from, do you remember back when you had no email list? What was, what was the first thing you did to start uh, growing it? So I put up a landing page and I sang, I'm writing a new book called The App Design Handbook and put in your email address to hear about this book when it comes out and to hear about the process. And which, by the way, if you put it together the landing page, the email opt-in form is the most important thing on the landing page. By far. So, by far. Headline, email opt-in form, everything else is quite secondary for... Yeah, a page that doesn't have much content on it. Yeah, and you don't need a lot of content. Like an email address is you're not selling, you're not trying to get them to spend hundreds of dollars, and so there aren't a lot of objections to overcome other than we won't spam you, I promise. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I put up that landing page and I tweeted it out to my 400 Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. And I got like 10 or 15 people who went to the page and put it, you know, said, yeah, that's cool. I will, you know, I want to hear about that. Uh, and so those 10 or 15 people um, started out the list. A few people, you know, posted links to it. I emailed a few friends who were designers and said, hey, could you share this? And through just kind of that activity, I got, I think, 30 or 40 people who um, said, I want to hear about your process making this book. And so I can hear about it, you know, maybe purchase it when it's ready for purchase. Mm-hmm. The great thing about that approach is you're not getting random people who may or may not be interested in a product. They already told you, I'm interested in this product. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a matter of coming out with a product later and wondering if your audience will want it. If you start with product first, then you're going to get higher conversion rates from email to paid just because they already expressed some level of interest. Right. So from there, I the landing page got shared around a little bit. I think it made it, made it on Hacker News uh, on the homepage for just a little bit, and that brought in like 150 email addresses. Um, so I was sitting at like 200 then, and then I wrote a detailed blog post about designing iPhone applications. And at the bottom of that blog post was that same email opt-in form. I'm writing a book. If you want to hear about it when it comes out and hear, you know, hear from me a little bit in the meantime, um, drop in your email address. This is the great unused pattern for getting emails, but yeah. And how did that work out for you? <laughs> it continued to grow. And an important note is that this 
this email list didn't grow in silence. I knew that you know those initial 200 people that they wanted to hear about designing iPhone applications. So I wrote this tutorial and I sent it to them. And I said, this is kind of related to the book. I think you'll like it. And so, and with that, I said a short paragraph of like, here's how the book's coming along. Just so that three months later, when I said the book's here, buy it, mm-hmm. though they will have a clue who I am because I stayed in touch right. and provided value throughout the process. That's that. So, Honestly, one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people with email is to keep the list warm by uh, continuing to deliver value to it. Yeah. So those blog posts that you put out, well, first, I guess what I should say is linking to a landing page for a book is people will do that and they'll share it around, but it doesn't actually provide any value right away. It doesn't provide any value to the reader. So if I share it with my Twitter followers, I tend to do it more as a favor to the, the author because I think it's a cool thing they're doing, rather than because I'm, I'm like, oh, my readers really need to see this, because it's just an email opt-in form. I think you can, yeah. that's true, the way most people do it. I think there's definitely ways to structure the, the page, even if it's just an opt-in form, such that um, you know, linking it to your, your audience does provide value to you. For example, you know, so much of social sharing is based on trying to project an image of yourself to people, you know, that's why right. there's like 600 political related things in my Facebook free feed right now. Not so much that someone was like urgently, this particular post is the best thing I've ever read about, you know, issue X, but rather I have a p- position on issue X, which I want to broadcast to people. So I will share this post. Um, if you had a opt-in form, which even with just one sentence of really focused copy, like planted it of a flag in the, in the ground, like if that was you know something people wanted to sign on with, I think they would retweet that you know just to like sign on for that movement and to demonstrate to people yeah. that that represented them. That's a good way. What's a good example to come up with that? Uh, so somebody I know recently just put up a opt-in page for you know a book on Ruby on Rails security, a topic near and dear to my heart, and they said like their one sentence of a resting copy was, "Your Rails application is broken." like security wise and that's not the exact copy but all applications are guilty until until proven in the sense you're not doing it right i will teach you how to do it better give me your email and so a lot of people you know retweeted just because they like endorse that message of if you haven't seriously thought about security if that hasn't been the number one issue on your plate for a while then yes your application is broken does that make sense the other thing that works really well for getting distribution for landing pages is to have some sort of free goodie that you can give people in return for their email address and then plug that goodie in other places. For example, during you know, doing guest posts with a, if you're interested in this topic, go here and I will give you a you know one hour long video on blah um, if you give me your email address. Or for people who do conference presentations, just having like a bit.ly URL to your landing page and put on the last slide of your conference presentation. If you're interested in this topic of the conference presentation, you can get, and the term of art is a premium, but you can get this free valuable thing from me by going here and giving me your email address. That can, you know, if there's 200 people in the room, you can get, you know, 20 emails like that, which um, they add up. They do. Or um, you can put that in podcasts as well. They do the the Rob Wallen kind of like podcast tour uh, to drum up interest in your thing. Which right, so kind of makes me want to ask: I, Do you have any landing pages that people should be on? 
Yeah, so if I was going to follow up with that right now, you know, I would say something like, you know, it'd be better if it worked into the conversation, but, uh, yeah. you know, I have this email course on uh, how to launch products, and if you go to nathanberry.com slash launch, you can get in on that free email course and, uh, you know, over three weeks get some awesome content on mm-hmm. exactly how to launch products. Um, that would have been a much more smoother way to introduce it, but, yeah, exactly like that, and uh, <laughs> that's something that you can do in virtually everything. You can also even, you know, give that pitch to people one-on-one when you're just, you know, shopping around your idea in your local community. Yeah. I think the AppSumo so, guys were, were very smart about it. They said, how do people get their first uh, 100 customers or 100 signups to an email list? And it's largely just by banging down doors like that. So one thing that I did very recently is I wrote an article for Smashing Magazine, and it was titled, How to Launch Anything. And it's my exact product launch plan, you know, kind of my my formula that I followed for three books now, exactly how to do it. But at the end, I always feel weird in guest posts. Like, it's kind of lame in a guest post to say, if you want to learn more about this, buy my book. Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of an awkward transition, I think. And a lot of editors on sites will be like, really? That's too Mm self-promotional. So a great transition, and one I did on the Smashing Magazine post, is I said, at the end, I said, I don't want your education on product launches to end here, right? You just read a 3,000-word article. That's great. There's much more to know. We can dive a lot deeper. So I put together this email course just for you guys. It's at nathanberry.com slash launch. Go check it out. Sign up. And we can continue this conversation. And we can dive a lot deeper over the next few weeks. I think, And that did very, very well. I think that is excellent, excellent positioning. You know, there's multiple parties that have to be happy with that in the circumstance we're using somebody else's audience. Obviously, the editor at Smashing Magazine has to be happy. You have to be happy because, you know, ultimately it's your work and your business and the readers have to be happy. And that's kind of a, a meeting of those three sometimes conflicting interests at a point where it works for everybody. Yep. And then in that email course, later on in the process, I can pitch my product. Right. And that's totally fine. Yeah. So long as the email course provides a bunch of value on its own. Mm -hmm. But, you know, two, three weeks in, I can give a hard, you know, after casually introducing my product, later on I can give a hard pitch for it. Mm -hmm. And and that works great. Right. And Uh, people have less, like, not memory like a human would have memory, but memory in kind of like the homeopathic sense that, you know, homeopaths think that water has memory, which it doesn't, but... People on an email list have even less memory than water in that sense. And that's um, while there are good sources of traffic and bad sources of traffic, given roughly consistent user demographics and whatnot and connection to the to the need that got them onto the email list in the first place, their behavior downstream doesn't strongly reflect how they got into it. You know, a guest post versus a link on Twitter versus yada yada. With, again, that very important provisor given roughly... Uh, similar demographic and uh, need fit. So if you assume that folks on Smashing Magazine are also designers, they're likely to be just as good for fits with the Naked and Berry ecosystem as folks who are coming in from, you know, a Hacker News thread or yada yada. Just to give a story from my own experience, when I realized last May that I wanted to start an email list, not like May a couple months ago, about 2012 May, the first thing that I did was put together a 45-minute video on designing the first-run experience of web applications, because that's something I have a good deal of expertise in and uh, went fairly well as a video format and was something that I hadn't done to death before, to be honest. And I said, if you give me your email, I will give you this 45-minute video. That was a good... It was not planned. Sometimes things just seem to fall into place retrospectively, but 
I thought I was eventually going to be releasing some sort of product to the list after I had it, but the priority at that point was to have the list and, you know, not have a use for it rather than having use for it and not having it. So, but it turns out that I eventually had a product which involved a lot of video. So by construction, if I'm asking people to sign up for the list to get a free video, it's going to be people who appreciate consuming video rather than don't. You know, there's some people who like listen to the podcast, but don't do text. A lot of people will read hundreds of thousands of words for me, but hate me. I've been uh, told that like my voice grates on people or they just don't listen to anything or whatever. Um, and similarly, like there's video nice. people out in the world, right? So if you're going to be selling video, attracting video people is a useful thing. It also, the first video, you can still see it at training.calzumis.com. It was really, really rough. Like my equipment, my process for taking the video and whatnot were not exactly where they are right now, but that gave me an opportunity to get the kinks out of the process in you know, a 45 minute free video rather than the five hours of paid video where quality issues would be more apparent and kind of looked down in a harsher manner. Yep, exactly. So the takeaway from that is if you're using a free incentive to get, get people on your list, have it be similar in style and you know media type to a product that you think you might offer down the road. Right, I think um, media type, character, tone, audience, yada yada. Obviously audience, because man, you don't want to be, it would be a bad, bad decision to get Magic the Gathering players onto your email list if you're eventually going to be selling enterprise software. There is some overlap there, but the closer to 100% overlap there is between your audience and the people you sell to, the better. Which, that segues well into our next topic. So both of us are kind of weird for businesses in that we have a product portfolio rather than just the one thing we do. I have a very a product portfolio which comprises a lot of very disparate groups of people, like the elementary school teachers who buy Bingo Card Creator have zero interest in my authorship activities about selling more software for B2B SaaS companies and have zero interest, you know, those folks have zero interest in Appointment Reminder, which helps at scheduling at like doctor's offices and other places that need to send automated phone and SMS reminders to their clients to come in on time. And you have a much more focused product portfolio in that like you're kind of Nathan Berry, the, the person who teaches designers to be better at what they do and are branching out a little bit. But I really like your approach more than I do my approach, uh, just in terms of being able to cross sell to the same people over and over and over again, having a kind of focused brand and more focus in your activities. Yeah, I think focusing in on your audience is really important. I wish I did a better job of it. To some extent, I've taken the the approach of this is what I'm interested in. Hopefully, I'll get people who, who are also interested in the same things. So I've got a book on designing iPhone applications, a book on designing web applications. There's a pretty good overlap between those two, right? Designers, it may not be 100% overlap, but it's pretty high. Right. But then I branched out a little bit you know, I've got an email marketing application called ConvertKit, and some of those designers are going to care about selling products, and so they will be interested in, you know, using email to do that. So there's, I don't know, if we assigned a random number, there's maybe 30% overlap there in some level of interest. And then I also happen to talk a lot about writing and publishing ebooks because I shared all the stats from my books. So I got some of those, you know, soon-to-be authors in my audience. And so I have, you know, my latest book is called Authority, and it's on building an audience, building credibility and authority, and then how to write and sell 
ebooks, information products, I guess. And so there's great overlap with ConvertKit because if you're following my methodologies, you're using email, ConvertKit's designed exactly for my process. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of great overlap with the design stuff. Uh, so, but there is some. You know, I've got plenty of people who have purchased all three of my books. And so it's not as tight as I would like it to be. You know, I, I think the, the person who does this best is Brendan Dunn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been on the podcast before. Right. Brendan just you know, has the, like, freelancers and consultants there, his bannermen, and they will follow him into war. Sorry, I was watching Game of Thrones yesterday, if you couldn't tell. But, yeah, and it works very well. Uh, there's a consistent well, confluence and, of interest between, you know, what he's working on on any given day and what they will always be interested in. So, yeah, awesome. And work. the only way he differentiates is maybe what scale they're at in their business. Right where he's got some products for people who are brand new freelancers, and then he's got some for people who are building up an agency right. or a consultancy. And so he can run that spectrum of you know, $40 product to $1,200 pro- workshop, but it's all within the same audience. Mm-hmm. So as close as you can get to that, the better. I have an iPad application that I made a few years ago. It made some money to help me quit my job, so I'm very, very grateful for it. And I learned a ton from the process. But now it's targeted at speech-language pathologists, mm-hmm. which has nothing to do with... There's no overlap whatsoever between them and designers or product marketers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this product that's sitting out there. It makes me like 800 to $1,200 a month, um, which I'm certainly not complaining about. Mm-hmm. But it has no overlap in my ecosystem, and I kind of just don't know what to do with it. And if I was being smart, I would probably uh, sell it off for a tiny amount of money and get rid of right. it or just shut it down or, you know, because it just doesn't fit. And so as much as you can get I think a single audience, the better. Like my candid and public advice for you would be either sell it for, you know, 10K or try that for two weeks. If you don't get any takers, then it's probably the case that your ongoing, the ongoing focus drain that it requires from you would be better deployed at other points in your business. But given that there's, you know, an installed customer base and whatnot, it would be better for them if you were able to successfully sell it to someone, maybe someone who wanted to get into the the app game and uh, yada, yada. There's hopefully somebody who had speech language pathologist (laughs) as an audience. As a customer. Yeah, that would be a, so. a great choice for a something I often see in small software companies is a uh, husband and wife team where one of them is the domain expert and one of them is the you know programmer. If there's a programmer out there whose uh, spouse is a speech language pathologist, and given that we know several thousand programmers, there's at least somebody who's in that combination. You should send me an email. Uh, please send Brent, uh, send uh, Nathan an email. Speaking of which, yeah, um, at so we've been talking mostly about info products, but uh, both of us have significant SaaS experience. You're running ConvertKit. A lot of people often ask me how you get the idea for a SaaS product that will actually sell to people. And I really like ConvertKit as an example for this because it's not a product that, you know, sprang out of your forehead, Athena, wait, no, is it Athena or Aphrodite that came from the forehead, Athena, uh, out of Zeus's, you know, it's a natural extraction from the business that you happen to already be running. Obviously, like, you know, the designing web applications and whatnot are a technology-focused business, but they're not a quote-unquote tech business in the way that people usually think of, where you had this pre-existing business, and it was obvious that there was a recurring need in the business that could better be met with technology than by the existing processes you were doing. So you created that technology. 
and you you know were basically customer number one for it. And given that you knew that this process that you had been using was generalizable across your industry and across other industries, then you knew there would be a market for it uh, rather than just like kind of you know throwing something at the dartboard and praying it stuck. Yep, absolutely. And so I know since I built the tool that I want for a process that I know makes money uh, as far as how to do email marketing, it's a lot of stuff we've just been talking about, you know, I knew that I would be a customer at the very least. So even if nobody else wanted it, I knew that I could use this tool to sell other books and products and, and make money. But the other fantastic thing that I love about building products for yourself is that you can actually use them like a real customer mm-hmm. instead of using them in some artificial way. So I had a tool years ago that was used by, it was a SaaS application, used by sign language interpreting agencies to schedule and manage all their freelance employees. Mm-hmm. And I would go through, you know, I, we'd release new features and I would go through and test it. And I would fill in all this fake data. And I would, I'd click through things, but I wasn't actually using the tool because I had no reason to use the tool. Right, right. And so it was all artificial use. Whereas with ConvertKit, because I'm the biggest fan of the software and the person who, you know, is chopping at the bit to get new features in and all of that, I'm using it every single day and improving on it and testing it. And it's just a much better spot to be in than trying to use some tool that you don't care about in an artificial way. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, given that I run bingo cards for elementary school teachers and uh, scheduling software for the office managers at plumbing firms, despite no longer being a elementary school teacher and having no experience in office management for plumbing firms, I can definitely tell you that the experience of developing a product where you're using it, quote-unquote, in anger in your own business is much different than trying to guess what people are using it with for those folks who are not building something for themselves. And I think that's a totally valuable way to go about things. You have to have a much more of your cycles devoted to kind of uh, being in the room with the customer, whether that's a literal fact or a... Um, kind of spiritually in the room with them, seeing how they use it in their business rather than kind of slinking off to the bat cave and coding up features that may or may not actually share on-the-ground correspondence with the way they use it or the way their business is run. You certainly can, especially if you focus on solving a painful problem. You can definitely build software for other people. You know, you've shown it with Appointment Reminder um, quite successfully, and, um, and I've done it on some other projects. It's just... Uh, I'm really loving the process with with ConvertKit building for myself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I need, and it's still on my to-do list. I want to try doing a course through that and see if it, uh, you know, obviously it'll work. The, the big question for me is whether it will work in a transformatively better way than the processes I, you know, already do for it. But again, the fact that yeah. I had processes was not a reason for you not to make the tool, right? Because there's a lot of people that their first time doing this or they don't have a consistent way of doing email courses and you kind of get to bake in all the best practices you know from having done it for the last year and had significant success and kind of so the 37 signals line having a uh, opinionated product that you know delivers not just a pleasing ui and a nice experience but also has like mini nathan berry like whispering over your shoulder the right way to do it here you're going to do it like this you're going to put up a form that looks like this and you're going to schedule a course that looks like this and you hit go and it will be magic so i really like 
everything about both the product and the kind of meta products around it, the strategy and where it fits in your business and in the business of your customers. And on that note, just time check, we are past that hour and a half mark, so we probably want to be wrapping it up in the next few. Yeah, sounds good. Oh, there's one one topic that I want to talk sure, about definitely. really quickly. And that is validating a product before you build it. Ooh, that could be a podcast in itself, but let's definitely address it. Yeah, We'll try to talk about it really quickly. Jason Cohen and a few others talk about, you know, if you can sell your idea and actually collect money from, you know, a handful of people before you build it, that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And when I was trying to figure out what to build for ConvertKit or what angle to take and if people wanted it, I went around and asked a bunch of people, like, is this a problem for you, you know? with email autoresponders, and a lot of people said yes. You were actually the one person who said, I, I think what you said is, you should build that software, but I would not buy it. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because you have all your own processes and you know mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But So I went around and asked a bunch of people, is this a painful problem? Would you buy it? And then I took it a step further and I asked, how much would you pay for it? And I got a number. Some people it was $50 a month. Some people it was... I think the highest number I got was $300 a month. And then I went further and said, would you pre-order it? Would you pay for this before it was ready? And a lot of people said yes, it, with varying levels of certainty. There were two people that I was 100% certain would pre-order it. Mm -hmm. The only problem is I didn't have a way for them to pre-order it right then. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I said, okay, cool. Thanks for your time. I will check back with you in a few weeks when I have a way for you to pre-order it. I did that. I came back. And the moment I came back and said, okay, here's a Gumroad checkout page. You can pre-order it now. That's when I started to get real feedback. Right. That's when I started to get the, oh, well, does it have this? It won't actually integrate into my system. I don't actually have enough time to start you know, running a campaign tomorrow. I'm just not ready for this. Yep, exactly. And it, and it was, well, it would be a lot of work to switch away from my existing tool. You know, and I started to get real feedback. And the people that I was dead certain would pre-order uh, never did. And they still don't use the tool today. Mm -hmm. Luckily for me, a bunch of other people did pre-order. Mm -hmm. And so I got validation from other sources. But just that one of the most critical lessons that I learned this year is you don't get real feedback unless you ask for money. Yep. And you don't even necessarily need to be able to physically take the money, but actually asking for it is important. One thing that Jason Cohen has done, which I did before, my validation for the appointment reminder market. I went to the Gold Coast slash Magnificent Mile area of Chicago, which is an area that I happen to know has lots of you know, high-end retail. At the time, I thought appointment reminder would largely be sold to massage therapists and salons and things like that. So they're thick on the ground over there. I took out $400 from the ATM and would just go into every salon, every massage therapy practice, ask if the person behind the counter was the owner. If yes, ask if they accepted walk-ins. If yes, say, okay, I'd like to get your 30-minute service, but I don't want to actually have the service. I'll pay you for the 30 minutes, and I just want to talk about the industry for a little bit because I'm interested in it. Then we would have discussions about what their scheduling practices were like and what sort of software they used. Most of them were on pen and paper. Did they do reminder calls? What was their no-show rate? What percentage of their business was recurring appointments? Yada, yada, yada. And at the end of this, you know, I would demo the two-page demo application I had for Appointment Reminder and said, this will be available eventually. Is it something you are interested in to solve this no-show problem that we've established that you're having? And if they said yes, 
I would like literally ask, can I put you down for, you know, the first month of it at, and I picked a number, for most of them it was 30 bucks, or the pricing still is today on the low end, and a bunch of them said, said yes, and then I would follow up with, can I get a check for it? And that, can you get a check question, changes the conversation quite a bit, like you've noticed. By the way, when you're doing pricing, pricing is generally not something you should ask customers for, uh, in my experience. That's something you should announce to them and get the you know, upvote or downvote on it. Um, I think you would have had better results if you, you had said, it's going to cost $100. Is it worth at least $100 for you? Rather than pick a number without any sort of uh, anchor attached to it. Because, yeah, I think that's true. you know, if you went into to my consulting clients and said, what's the value of a lead for you guys? $20,000. Okay. You know, it's going to cost $1,000. Assuming it generates a lead every month, is the $1,000 worth it for you? And they'd be like, um, scratch, scratch. Yes. And you'd have a different pricing structure than you do currently and a few people paying you quite a bit of money. But that neither here nor there. I still really love what you've done with the business. Anyhow, um, well, I think we've covered a lot of ground and to avoid boring people with their voice anymore. We'll uh, kind of cut this short, but we should definitely do another one sometime. Sounds good. All right. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us, Nathan. For the people who you know, are in my ecosystem, but not in yours yet, the easy entry point for them is nathanberry.com slash launch. And then yep. that will get them on your email list and get them you know, all the wonderful goodness that you give people for free with the ob- obligatory, there might eventually be a sales pitch in there. For the two people who are listening to this but are not on my email list yet, you should be on it, uh, training.calzumis.com. And all right, folks, thanks very much for sticking with this podcast through our kind of inconsistent schedule and occasional technical glitches. We'll be back in a few weeks. So thanks much and see you next time.